Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And welcome to Antiques Freaks. Every episode is a special episode. What antiques are we talking about this week? Today, we've got a listener request. Shout out to Holly. Thank you for making me think about stuff. I want to talk to you about perfume bottles. But what is a perfume bottle? It is any kind of vessel for holding scented water or material, frequently referred to as perfume. Perfume bottle is a vast and liquid sort of form. <laughs> but D, the liquid's on the inside. Uh, hey that's not. It's not always liquid. Uh, sometimes it's resins. Perfume is a really, really, really old practice. Uh, turns out humans just like to be smelling. And dates back in the fashion that we know it as outside of just things like incense and oils to 15 BC, where you see people bottling it for the explicit purpose of smelling it and nothing else. Okay. Most associated with Egypt, although it does date back to ancient Babylon. It's associated with Egypt because of lies, mostly, but... Like so many things associated with Egypt, it is built on a foundation of lies. (laughs) Egypt is a really cool and fascinating subject, which unfortunately has bred a lot of mistruths. Did the aliens give us perfume? They did. Did they come down on the pyramids and say, hey, huff this? Yeah, they they said, get away (laughs) for this. No, just that there is the idea of the Egyptian perfume bottle that probably didn't exist in Egypt as it is sold to us. They are like a really colorful blown glass, and they are frequently associated with ancient Egypt. However, they were probably dated back to maybe 3,000 years ago. The not as ancient as you could have been award. Yeah, it's just one of those half-truths. They did blow glass, they made glass perfume bottles. They were not in the cradle of civilization, as some people think. They were not in pre-Alexander the Great coming in and fucking everything up Egypt. Yeah, now's a really fun time to remind everyone that if you look up the names of pharaohs and stuff that you knew, it didn't happen all that long ago. What? Like, Cleopatra, right? Like, is contiguous in time with, like, Eton University. No. Kind of vibe. No, D. Cleopatra, okay. Eton's not a university. <laughs> and well, it yeah. was not founded <laughs> in the time of Cleopatra the Seventh. Or, frankly, any other Cleopatra. Uh, okay. Are you confusing it with the old chestnut about Oxford and the Aztec Empire? Yes, I am. Okay. Yes. Is it because they both have pyramids? Yeah, actually, probably. Okay. We're learning a lot here today, folks. All I'm trying to say (laughs) is that Ptolemaic (laughs) Egypt was not as far back as you think. It was not, no. It was not as far back as everything else about Egypt. Yeah. In any case, alongside Egypt, pretty much every major civilization would adopt the habit of making themselves smell nice. And it becomes even more familiar around the 17th century with the introduction of a pomander, which is a small metal, either handheld or worn device meant for carrying ambergris. Like what you get out of a whale? Like what you get out of a whale, and considered the most important base scent in perfumery. Unfortunate for whales. Deeply unfortunate for whales. That sucks, but that was and is a very popular scent base. I've smelled it, and I don't get the appeal. If you would like to smell it yourself, come on down to our scenic whaling museum in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, that, that's one of the funner things is that sometimes if you take a tour, they let you smell the ambergris, and they're like, people like to smell this, and you're like, oh, dear God. <laughs> In fact, pomander is just French from palm de amber. Which is an apple of amber. Yep, so an apple-shaped thing to hold amber. They, they really define it for you. And this is kind of the first step that we see towards a decorative, sort of self-indulgent vehicle for perfume. 
And then, of course, yada yada, stuff happens. The 18th century becomes the height of dedicated bottles for fragrances. As people's technology advanced and fragrances were allowed to become more complex and manufactured in larger volumes, it became more and more important to sell your shit and really wow the crowd. You suddenly have a explosion of competition between goldsmiths, jewelers, glassmakers, potters, and sculptors to make increasingly ornate and or figural bottles. The whole idea was to draw the eye and sell your own scent this time. Earlier, the idea was to sell empty, usually cut glass bottles, which could then be filled with the perfume of your choice. But around the 20th century, they began to move towards bottles that were manufactured and tailored to specific scents as they became more and more associated with specific brands. One of the most important inventions in perfumery was made by Gastronome Brillat Savarin with the invention of the atomizer, which might be the most familiar and romantic symbol of perfume ever in 1870. It's the squishy bit that makes the liquid go psh. It is, in fact, the squishy bit that draws liquid up in a little straw and atomizes it or turns it into a mist to cover your skin. They added both elegance and economy to the fragrance lifestyle. Supposedly, they saved the perfume, although I think it was probably the opposite. I think you probably used less in the dabbing method. But it felt great to do, and that's what really mattered. <laughs> fragrance also became incorporated into jewelry as wearable perfume bottles began to blossom, such as very large beads with stoppers for scent and lockets for thick resin scented pieces. I think they use wax now, but solid perfume is still a thing. Imagine my surprise. I am imagining it as you going full home alone, hands on the other side of your face, screaming. Yeah. Now, we would be here for an extremely long time if I went over every single brand and artist that was important to the evolution of the perfume bottle as an art form as we know it today. So we'll just touch on some names. We've got René Lalique, perhaps the most famous glassmaker and the most synonymous with perfume, designing fragrance bottles at first for Coty and Baccarat, the extremely historied crystal manufacturer making perfume bottles for Guerlain. As the perfume bottle had become both a part of the fine lady's exquisite toilette, as well as a piece of decoration in and of itself, the competition was only heightened to create the most stunning, show-stopping bottles of all time. And some say that that competition continues to this very day. In 1946, Elsa Schiaparelli collaborated with Salvador Dali, creating the first fashion artist with regular artist team-up to create one of the most remarkable perfume bottles of all time, Le Roy Soleil. I'm imagining you telling Salvador Dali to his face that you consider him a regular artist. It's very funny. Well, I mean, they're just different mediums, you know? I would describe him as a fine artist. I don't know that I'd describe him as a regular or standard artist. You know, one of your bog-standard artists. One of your normie artists, Salvador Dali. <laughs> I mentioned this mostly just because I love this bottle so much. Is it melting? No, no. It took Sun King very literally in that it is a royal figure with the head of an actual sun. Oh. Yeah. How tame for Dali. Well, it was to celebrate France's liberation from the Nazis. Very cool. So I thank him for his stayed hand and not getting silly with it. <laughs> it was one of the examples that I ran into that I was like, oh, now I, I get it. Like, this is gorgeous. And a short aside about René Lalique, because I also love him. René Lalique was French. All right, that's it. Everybody go. <laughs> Hot damn, you don't say. René Lalique was in many ways a forerunner of the art of perfume bottles, as mentioned for Coty originally in Paris. 
He was remarkable because he had started as a jeweler. He used an unusual process for making bottles that is common in jewelry casting called cire perdu or lost wax. How the Greeks used to make their bronzes. Precisely so. You carve the figure in wax and you melt the wax out of a mold, which creates a really nice high definition mold in which you can make a lot of really like fine figures. So delicate. So delicate. And if you see any of Lalique's perfume bottles, you'll get the difference that delicacy really pushed him over the edge as a perfume bottle man. He also did not add lead to his crystal. He preferred a demi-crystal, which was unleaded crystal, because it was inexpensive, easy to work with, and imbued his perfume bottles with a milky opalescence that later became his trademark. And also, now the perfume's not so poisonous as it could be. Not as poisonous as it could be award goes to Rene Lalique. <laughs> Lalique's glasswork especially does have a very airy, hard-to-define quality about it that really sets it apart from other glasswork, and this non-leaded crystal is the difference that you see. And I think that's neat. And I think that's beautiful. So, now that I've reminded you that perfume is old and smelly, do you want to collect perfume bottles? You bet I do! Well, there's a really huge lot of them to collect. Awesome! Yeah, it is awesome! Perfect for me, a guy who wants to collect them! Yeah, hey guy who wants to collect them! them, it's going to be easier than you think, because there's a lot of them. But it's also going to be harder than you think, because there's a lot of them. One thing that I thought was really weird was I didn't realize people collect the perfume itself. Oh yeah! You knew that? Yeah. That's so strange. One of the people that were writing about the collection of the scents themselves, they were talking about the earlier you go, the more and more lax IFRA restrictions become until eventually you don't have IFRA restrictions at all. Now what's an IFRA? The International Fragrance Association, which sets a lot of important rules about perfumes and what they can contain that make them safe. So collectors really want the least safe perfumes possible. I think it's less about whether or not it's safe and a lot more about the fact that it is a smell you can never smell again because people will not be making it again. Now, is there like an underground bootleg illegal perfume production trying to recapture these lost scents with frankly unsafe methodology? I thought of that and I looked for that and I could not find proof of that. Dark web, get on it. There's a lot of people who are trying to bootleg scents for sure. Whether or not they're trying to do it through illegal IFRA banned means, I'm not certain. But it would be exciting, wouldn't it? Finally, a new genre of heist movie. God, that would be really fun. Uh, you know, the more I'm thinking about it, like that'd be hella. <laughs> In general, a perfume that is older than 10 years is considered vintage. This applies to discontinued and currently produced perfumes, such as Chanel Number no. 5. Is it because they come out with like a new version of that every year, or...? Not every year, but every, I would say, three years or so, it, it seems to happen at random, the formula for Chanel Number no. 5 will change, and there are collectors dedicated specifically to certain formulations of Chanel Number no. 5. This is one of the most bonkers collecting communities I've seen in a really long time. And related matter, hello everyone listening who enjoys perfume collecting. We value your opinion. Uh, hey, bonkers isn't always like a bad thing. <laughs> Remember when it was like a, a good candy? I don't actually have never heard of Bonkers the Candy. Oh, yeah. Well, they didn't name it Bonkers because it was bad candy. It's because it was so good it was crazy. Which leads into my next thing, which is that perfume can be a brand whore thing. Of course it can. With the obvious fancy brands like Cartier, Chanel, Coty, will all command a higher price just sort of naturally. What about your Calvin Kleins? I don't know that those go for much. <laughs> 
I actually didn't look it up when I was checking out stuff. No? No. You neglected Sir Calvin of Klein? Sir Calvin of Klein, unfortunately, did not make the slate. Aw, boo. Uh, I did find Antique the Oregon de Coty sold for $30 on eBay, so... So less than a bottle of any perfume new. (laughs) Yeah, which is crazy. Which is crazy. So that's something to consider if you're into collecting perfume bottles is do you want perfume to be in them? I mean, that is an option, I guess. You can also consider what kind of bottle would you like? The bottles came in hugely varying shapes and forms. You could decide on just cut glass, just bohemian cut glass, certain eras such as the 1920s or 1930s, which are considered something of a golden age for perfume bottles. You can collect gemmel bottles, which is two flattened oval bottles joined with their necks pointing in opposite directions which I don't understand the point of, but they look cool. You can specifically focus on dabbing bottles, perfume jewelry bottles, atomizer bottles, which are pretty easy to pick out in a crowd, or even Avon bottles. If you just really enjoy multi-level marketing. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. All right, this isn't an Avon episode. Do you know if Avon's always been an MLM? So it depends on how you define direct sales versus multi-level marketing. I think as soon as you get away from direct sales, I don't think that you're a store anymore, if that makes sense. Then the answer is from 2005, they've been multi-level marketing. All right, interesting. So you can buy these bottles free of guilt that you were contributing to the memory of an MLM. Well, you're buying them secondhand, so Avon's getting nothing. That's true too. <laughs> so you're fine. Avon bottles are frequently derided for the same reason that they are frequently adored. They are extremely cheap on the secondhand market since they were mass produced on a scale that was only conceivable in modern times. They are very whimsical. There was an object or a piece of transportation or idea that you would like to have as a little bottle. There's a good shot Avon has it. Would you like a little dog whose head is the stopper full of an extremely stanky vinegar smell? Avon has your back. Do you need a skin softener that functions as an insect repellent for reason science cannot yet explain? Turn to Avon. Avon has been innovating a lot of things for a very long time, largely unwillingly. Often accidentally are Avon's innovations. <laughs> Avon bottles are actually where a lot of people get their start in perfume bottles because they are ever present and they're admittedly very fun. And I've never seen one sell for more than $10, so that's a major plus. For buying. For someone who's just inherited a distant relative's collection of 2,000 Avon bottles, less good news. But it's less good news and you might want to lower your expectations. That could be a tagline for this podcast, to be fair. Whoa. Ouch. (laughs) Oh, my heart. (laughs) Just in terms of reselling. Oh, okay. (laughs) Shit. Oh, man. Not in terms of the quality of the podcast itself, but rather finding something old in your house and whether or not it will bring you a bajillion dollars. Yeah. In which case, that is an excellent byline. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of difficult for me to talk about what kinds of bottles there are to collect because, frankly, thousands, hundreds of thousands, ranging the price gamut. From 10 to $20. I think it's pretty important to set out for yourself what you expect of a collection. Um, in my personal opinion, always go eclectic. It will be more fun that way. But what I can't help you with, more specifically, is dating perfume bottles. How many perfume bottles are on Hinge? Here's the thing, if you're dating on Hinge, you're going to be smelling some interesting stuff, so how different could it be? Wow! (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm saying some folks are stinky. <laughs> Apparently. But yeah, perfume being the structured endeavor to create that it is, often leave behind a lot of clues as to whether or not they are real and when they may have come from. You could have smelled it, Mr. Police. I gave you all the clues. I gave you all the clues. One example is that enameled lettering, known as serigraphy instead of a paper label, resembling a thick, glossy type of paint on glass bottles, began to be used in the 1930s and was extremely regular until... I think they still use it, actually. It's normal. Very regular. Very regular. It's a form of silkscreen processing, which is very fragile, and you will run into a lot of bottles who have lost parts of this. But if there are even fragments left, you can kind of know that it's 1930s or later. Also from the 1930s and 40s are patent numbers on the base of the bottle. A bottle older than the 1930s and glass might have an etched matching number on the base of the perfume bottle and the bottom of the stopper. This was done because stoppers, especially at higher end places, would be ground to fit the bottle specifically so that the numbers were to make sure the bottle and the stopper were never to be apart. They are set. Do not separate. Which is very exciting because married stoppers is a huge problem in bottles. If you're new, uh, marriage refers to pieces that fit together but were not originally a part of the set together, such as the wrong lid on a cook pot. And the use of this term in the antiques industry does give us an incredible opportunity to make a lot of marriage jokes. It's true. You can look at a bottle with rage and say, you're about to get divorced. <laughs> <laughs> There's the very obvious uh, label that says made in occupied Japan, which limits it specifically to 1945 until 1952. In the 1970s, many cosmetic companies were stamping colored numbers on the bottom of their products, uh, usually four numbers, and is a batch code, which denotes what year and month the product was created, which took everyone a really long time to figure out, given that perfume is a thing that does sort of have a limited lifespan, at least in its ideal form. After its expiration date, it smells significantly different. <laughs> yeah, um, a lot of people were insisting that it doesn't smell bad necessarily, but I think it's very fair to say it smells very different. <laughs> It's certainly not the original intent of the scent crafter. To this day, many bottles have batch codes engraved into the glass, such as Chanel, Dior, Terry Mugler, and a lot of the, what I'm going to call, Macy's names. Wow. I think that's where people run into perfume a lot. <laughs> that's not true. Now we have Scentbird. I wish it's like a cult, I think. Yeah? Look it up. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't done enough research to say for sure, because I just found out like yesterday. <laughs> But, like, it might be a cult. You listen to podcasts. How have you only heard of Scentbird yesterday? They're advertising with everybody except us. <laughs> I know. I, I thought it was, like, a regular subscription service. I didn't realize it was a cult until yesterday. I mean... Or might be. I, I Allegedly. I need more info. I need more time. This is a breaking story. <laughs> uh, in general, I find those kinds of services a little bit distasteful, personally. You just hate it when the common man has access to boutique goods? I don't hate that. Well, now you're making me sound like a villain. No, I don't hate that. Why do you hate the proletariat, D? You know what? Yeah, I do. <laughs> no, I'm the ultimate proletariat because I think the way you should experience boutique goods is by stealing the testers at Macy's, as God intended. <laughs> It would be really funny if that's how Scentbird gets them. Oh, I hope so. A PVC plastic-coated glass bottle is dated from 1953, before becoming unpopular into the 1970s. Now, these are aerosol bottles that are made of glass and coated with a thin layer of plastic. Why? I don't know. Why did they do that? 
The more I looked into why they were doing this, all I could find is that it was innovated by the Bristol Myers Plastic Company, and the rights were sold to the Wheaton Glass Company, which it was a bottle-specific factory, and they were made there, and then other perfumers did it, and nobody said why. If I had to hazard a guess, it's because of the range of colors that could be introduced. Okay. In my opinion, they're a lot uglier than a glass perfume bottle. Yeah, it just seems like a real downgrade. They are distinctive by a rubbery feeling on the surface, which also sucks to me, and were fitted with automatic aerosol sprays, which is a waste of your perfume, in my opinion. Damn. I think an atomizer is the ideal method of putting the scent on your skin. It is economic, it feels amazing, and it is just the right amount. Wow, brave. Yeah, I know. I'll take today's hero award, thank you. Aerosol packaging would actually start to go out of fashion through the 1970s. These are pump sprays known as natural sprays with no gas propellants. These were said to be safer to use, which I believe, and cheaper than an aerosol. This is what we are familiar on perfumes today. A metered mist on a simple pump mechanism. First seen in 1963 by Lon Vin for their perfume Arpege. A rather late apology to the French for what I'm doing to your language, but you could probably Google it the way I'm saying them, so it's going to have to stand. <laughs> If your bottle has a label that says returning this bottle to the perfumer is a national duty, why, that's from the 1940s to the 1945s. Can you figure out why? I can! Rationing! <laughs> Ideally, these would be used and sent back to the perfume factories to be refilled and resold. Numbers are unclear how often it actually happened, but it was heavily encouraged. And evidently didn't happen to the ones that you have. <laughs> and it absolutely didn't happen to the one you had in hand. Which actually means that defying your national duty became more important as you created a relic to be enjoyed to this day. No, that's, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not what that means. No? No. Another tell, which is very great for all kinds of glass, is the rough pontal, which indicates 1850 or earlier, as a rough pontal bottle would be quite rare after 1850. Now what's a pontal? A pontal is the belly button-like spot on a piece of glass where it was broken off from the blowing pipe, or shaping pipe, depending on how it was made. It would not be fashionable to sand pontals down until around the 1860s, hence the suggestion of 1850, and it always implies that at some point blown or shaped glass was used in the process. Either fully hand-blown, in which case there will be zero mold seams, or what we call mold-blown, which is when the glass is blown into a two- or three-part mold, in which case there are that many seams and a pontal mark. You have the standardized package, which is introduced in 1975, in which people stopped making fancy bottle shapes and made plain stock bottles. Boring. Yeah, lame. They're referred to as omnibus bottles and are generally used for an entire line of fragrances. You'll be hearing this a lot. Chanel number no. five has an omnibus bottle. There's one little desperate cog in my brain every time you say Chanel number no. five that desperately wants it to be to the tune of Mambo number no. five, but I can't figure out how the rest of it would go, nor could I sing it to a tune anyone would recognize. You would not be able to because the ingredients of perfumes are really long and hard to rhyme. I want to believe. Although I'm happy to state that it would be extremely easy to drop into Google at any time and find out a year's formulation for any Chanel number no. five. It's not secret? Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the devil works fast, but perfume fanciers work faster. Damn. You see a roll-on applicator. This is introduced in the 1980s. These are called perfume pens also with rubber sponge-tipped applicators so you could just sponge the perfume onto your neck. That feels like a breeding ground for bacteria. It does. 
But don't worry, most of the time the alcohol in the perfume has eaten through the rubber sponge tip and it is no longer usable. Yay! May I recommend decanting it into another easier to use bottle? <laughs> Now we get a little esoteric. The flanged lip. The flanged lip? The flanged lip, which was introduced in the first half of the 1800s in the US with Spillman bottle number 65. I love bottle people so much. That's my favorite band, The Flanging Lips. The Flanged Lips. Their first album, Spillman Bottle Number 65. Yeah. Hold on. Spillman Bottle 65. Is that anything? Unfortunately, no. Okay. But an attempt was made, and we honor that. Well, <laughs> this was the first half of the 1800s, US Pacific, and would continue on until about 1850 alongside other hand finished bottles, let's call them. It is a wide, thin lip on a bottle formed by spreading the mouth of the bottle. This can actually be seen either as a flat sort of dish-like shape on the lip or rolled into a delicate sort of spiral. There's also what we call the full-size mold, introduced in 1820 in England, and was many bottles by 1830, very, very popular, would eventually overtake Pontal bottles. A uniform size and pattern, made in a full-size mold, has a vertical seam lining from base to neck. The upper neck and lip were hand-finished, which you can see by grinding and polishing. But wait, Ken, there's more. You can tell the age by certain caps. That's right, we're getting granular. Like a flat cap versus a baseball cap versus a trilby versus a fedora versus a top hat versus a stovepipe. Yeah, if it's got a backwards baseball cap, it's probably from like the 2010s. Okay. A perfume from 1850 or older is often factory sealed with a baudruche, which is also called the gold beater's skin, or an onion skin, which isn't as cool as gold beater's skin. I don't know that anything will ever be as cool as gold beater's skin. Yeah. Same. Other sealants would also go on to be gelatins, viscose, which is a kind of fabric, acetate, or thin cellulose films in red, clear, blue, or other colors. These are mostly just to be fancy and seal in liquid. The Bakelite screw cap, as you might be able to guess if you're familiar with Bakelite, was in usage from 1930 to 1950. And on fire for much longer. No, Bakelite was safe. Oh, I'm thinking of celluloid. Which is my next one. Celluloid, the earliest plastic <laughs> imitating ivory in a tortoise shell. Highly flammable, discontinued in the mid-1920s when plastics that didn't burst into flames and destroy your other plastics became available. Yay! Now, while you can identify Bakelite easily by rubbing your finger over it very quickly or holding it under hot rotter, uh, Bakelite will smell like formaldehyde or carbolic acid. Celluloid, which I don't recommend doing this to because, again, it's extremely flammable, smells like camphor. Interesting. There's also Galilith, a uh, French Bakelite, a sort of resin-based plastic which didn't burst into flames. Mostly used to imitate tortoiseshell, jade, lapis lazuli, and ivory. Galilith, when hulled under hot water or rubbed, like Bakelite or celluloid, smells like burnt milk. That's... A choice. Yeah. And also, not a thing you want your perfume to smell like. Not ideally. No. Lucite caps suggest 1937 to modern times. Clear to imitate crystal or opaque with embedded glitter. You can look at the 80s for that one. Most of them are identifiable by their yellowing, referred to as apple juice color. Because it would be gauche to call it piss. Because it would be gauche to call it piss. Exactly. Plastic caps placed over the base of a ground glass stopper, seen in 1970 in France, Saint Gobain des Jonqueres, introducing the first fine plastic covered dowel stopper. A weird sentence. I don't think plastic's ever been fine. Novel, perhaps. Fine, no. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, yeah. Glass stoppers that had dowels that went into corks were in use from 1870 to 1920. 
silver-plated or gold-plated metal screw caps in use from the 1920s onward, silver-plated or gold-plated plastic screw caps used in the 1940s onward. Now, other miscellany includes any reference to the word dram to denote contents is used specifically during the 1930s and 1940s. A dram was equal to about 5 milliliters or 1 eighth of an ounce. I thought it was just a pharmaceuticals thing, because you can find pharmaceutical supplies with this. Uh, turns out it was perfume too. Now, when you get your old perfume and you want it to stank less, uh, it turns out you could just buy perfumer's alcohol. This is specifically when the water and alcohol have evaporated out of the bottle, leaving a sort of sludge, which smells way too strong. Uh, you can actually just pour in some perfumer's alcohol and try to restore it to its former glory, which is neat. That is it for my foray into perfume bottles. Including resources for, if you want more info on the smells themselves, you can go to raidersofthelostscent.blogspot.com. Excellent title. If this made you want to make perfume, you could go to perfumeprojects.com. Sources referenced today include everfumed.com, learning about the different antique perfume bottles. The book Miller's Perfume Bottles, a collector's guide. Scentgrail.com, are old perfume bottles valuable? Cleopatrasboudoir.blogspot.com, do you have vintage perfume and need to know about it? Collectorsweekly.com slash bottle slash perfume. Allthedecor.com, collecting vintage perfume. Rarebirdantiques.com, collecting perfume bottles. And perfumebottles.org. There it is. Building a collection and pretty much every other page of that website. If you would like to suggest an episode topic or just say hello, you can email us directly on Podcast at gmail.com. You can post on our Facebook group, Friends. You can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. Or you can check out our Instagram at instagram.com slash antiquesfreaks. If you liked to think about how different plastic smells when it's hot, feel free to scroll on down wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave us a five-star review. I've always wondered what hot plastic smells like. And if you would like more Antiques Freaks in your week, head on over to patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks, where every week we read and review a chapter of the Victorian Penny Dreadful Varney the Vampire, The Feast of Blood. Special thanks to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. So much love. And thank you in particular for listening. That's right, you. Au revoir. Goodbye.